Warning. This episode of the World Nomads podcast has explicit content. Not suitable for sensitive ears. Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. There were days when we were sort of hugging each other, uh, you know, in tears, uh, wondering why we'd done this. And then other days when you're looking at a sunset with a herd of elephants by a river, drinking a, a, a cold can of um, of Hansa beer and thinking, wow, this is <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. That is Simon Reeve. He's an Australian TV personality who lived in Africa and he has a love affair with it. In fact, you know Simon, Phil. I do. I, I've known Simon quite a while. I actually knew his father before that as well over in Perth. And he gave you speech lessons. <laughs> I, know, I can see where you're going here, Kim. No, there's nothing that you can mispronounce in this podcast at all. Let's hope if you haven't already been there, this episode of the podcast focusing on Botswana will help shoot it to the top of your travel list. Yeah, it's a landlocked country in southern Africa and has a landscape defined by the Kalahari Desert and the Okavango Delta, which becomes a lush animal habitat during the seasonal floods. In fact, it's home to the world's largest population of elephants. Yep. In this episode, we'll hear more from Simon, obviously, and another Australian who fell in love with photographing the wild animals of Africa. There's Kelsey Timmerman, New York Times bestselling author and a champion of global thinking and local action. He's in the episode. And award-winning travel journo Heather Richardson. She'll tell us about the sand bushman of Botswana. But we kick off with your quiz question. A pretty simple one. What is the major export of Botswana? Find out at the end of the episode. Indeed. When I was researching this chat, I came across an article from a few years ago and it starts off with, he may be a sought-after TV star. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Who appears on a slew of seven shows. But despite his rising profile, Simon Reeves' heart is with Africa. We've got him on the line now to chat Botswana. Simon, you are indeed a TV star. <laughs> uh, well, probably was, I think, Kim. That might have been, that rising rising profile, that might have been quite a few years ago. Now I'm just hanging on with my fingernails. But, <laughs> Uh, but, it, but it's all good. But y- yes, most definitely, uh, Phil and Kim, my heart is uh, is still across the Indian Ocean. Well, explain to us, how did you make that connection? What, how did you fall in love with Botswana? So I fell in love with Africa first on a Beyond 2000 shoot, which was back in 1990. And I stepped off a plane in Harare when Qantas used to fly there. Uh, believe it or not, Qantas had flights... Uh, every week into Johannesburg and into Harare as well in Zimbabwe, the, the country's capital. And I stepped off a plane there and it was just like a rush. It was it was visceral uh, and it was the smells, the, the feel, the magic of the place, uh, people and the bush as well. So I kind of returned from that trip and said to my dearly uh, long-suffering partner, Linda, I said, look, you know, you can come too, but... I'm going to go and live in Africa at some point um, in, in, in my life, you know. And, and look, she very courageously said, yep, we're in. So it, it took us a while for, for the, everything to sort of line up. But I, I'd met some um, wonderful South African uh, folks on another show that I work for called Wildlife, which, which took me to Africa quite a lot. And they moved their operations, their safari operations to Botswana. So... I was able to convince them that it might be a good idea to attach a small production company to their safari operation 
And lo and behold, uh, next thing you know it, uh, we packed up, uh, took our then 20-month-old daughter, Stella, with us. And in 1999, uh, we, we set sail for Botswana. So we lived in a, a, a small town called Maun, M-A-U-N, which services the uh, Okavango Delta and everything to the north. So it's the sort of safari hub, I guess, where everyone flies into from Johannesburg or other places. And then off they go into the Delta to have their Botswana experience. So we were there for, for two, two and a half years and absolutely loved it. So it was that palpable when you stepped off the plane that this this place was talking to you somehow? It, it was, Kim. It, it really was. And and I think that if there's anyone listening who has been to uh, to Africa, you know, to any parts of Africa, I think they'll relate to what I'm saying here. And, and I still have it. It has not gone. It's gotten worse, I think, over the years. You know, like, I mean, as, as I sort of sit here today, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pining to go back and, and have another hit uh, because it, it has that effect on you. It's it's very difficult, I guess, to put it into words, but it, it is it's overwhelming. If you fall in love with Africa, it's hook, line and sinker. We went very much with eyes wide open to have a life experience, and we got that. And we made great friends um, in in Botswana who remain sort of lifelong friends with us. Uh, and, it, and it had a very profound impact, and, and not not all good, you know. Like uh, somebody said to me, I guess you know, uh, going back a few years, uh, when it was probably more acceptable to say this, but a, a, a good Afrikaans friend of mine said, you know, Simon. Africa is not for sissies. And, and you know, he, was, he was kind of right. You know, like there were days when we were sort of hugging each other, uh, you know, in tears, uh, wondering why we'd done this. And then other days when you're looking at a sunset with a herd of elephants by a river, uh, drinking a, a, a cold can of, um, of Hansa beer and thinking, wow, this is, <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. To, to, to lie in a tent on a hot night in the Okavango Delta in October or November and listen to a lion's call across a savannah and across the wetlands, that, for me, that if that was the last thing I heard, I would die very happy. Well, you've been very positive about Botswana, but you did also say earlier that your mate had said Africa is not for sissies and you did have times where you'd be in each other's arms with, with tears. What sort of things prompted that? Look, that... that, that one of the, uh, I, I'm, this is probably the best example I can give really, was when we arrived in Botswana, so we had done Kruger Park. We'd, in, actually, we'd done about three weeks in Kruger Park. We, we'd bought a vehicle. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we had our L plates on big time, let me tell you, you know. Mm. So by the time we, we arrived in Mao, I guess we'd been sort of five or six weeks on the ground in, in Johannesburg and, and South Africa generally. And because of the time of year, because of where we'd been, our daughter at 20 months old, uh, on our first night in Mound, had this raging fever. The people we were staying with, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, we said, you know, okay, we'll, we'll just have to keep her as, as cool as we can. And we've got, you know, the Panadols and the Nurofens and all the rest of it. But tomorrow morning, uh, you know, what, what can we do? And they said, all right, well, the chemist opens, you know, at, at 7.30 and the chemist is a fellow called Christo, a, a lovely Afrikaans fellow. And he saw, Christo saw the look on our eyes, uh, in our eyes and said, look, come, come, come in. So he was able to do immediately a, a malaria test on our little girl. So we're, you know, pricking her finger, doing the, the prick test. Um, 
and in fact, I think Linda was doing the prick test on me at the time. Thinking, Why have you brought us here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we were able to find out very quickly that no, she didn't have malaria because that was our biggest fear that, you know, and me thinking, I'm, oh, my God, you know, in the first sort of few days, I'm going to kill my child, <laughs> you know, um, not a good start. Those were the days yeah. when, when, you know, when you do sort of, you, 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 you're reduced to this, this kind of quivering mess thinking, you know, what have I done to my family? We're, we're not near sort of first world medical, medical care, but... You, you had these amazing experiences with these amazing people. And, and that chemist, for example, in Botswana is able to dispense medicine. He's able to make practical calls about people's illnesses. Now, you, nice. you talked about, you know, the ordinary people that you meet that really make the trip as well. But you met a few famous people, some royalty, perhaps? Uh, yes. So in one of the little bars, and I'm like, there were only like three of them in Maun, uh, but by that time, this is like 2001, um, Harry, Princess Harry and William, and especially William at the time was a little bit older, they had fallen head over heels uh, for Botswana as well, in particular Botswana, uh, because it was the place they could go where there was no paparazzi. They were truly off the beaten track. And people, the local folks there, treated them with great respect. And and so there I was at the bar, sort of somebody leans over and whispers to me and says, Oh, there's there's the prince, you know, like standing next to you, and uh, and sure enough, it was it was Prince William in this tiny bar. So, you know, what do you do? I mean, do you kind of go, I love what you're doing, <laughs> like, like uh, yeah, hey, great night, huh? or something equally yeah. inane. And and he was very very charming, and 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 said, yes, you know, I love this place or whatever. And as I sort of sculpt off, kind of, you know, high-fiving everybody back in our bunch. But so, so, and they still go there. And in fact, a, a good friend of ours, a lovely guy called Map Ives, who, who knows more about the, uh, the ecosystem of the Okavango Delta than anyone alive. Um, he was invited by Harry. In fact, he, uh, Harry is the patron of one of his, of one of Map's charities and, and wonderful rhino organizations. And, and Map got to go to Harry and Meghan's wedding recently. So there was, in fact, there was a small uh, bunch who went from Botswana who have known um, William and Harry since those dark days because soon after, yeah. uh, I think soon after Diana was killed, you know, that they were, uh, th- they did go to, to Africa to sort of escape everything. And, and, and as kids, I think they fell in love with it and, and their uh, passion for Botswana in particular still burns as, as much as mine today. Bobby Joe Vile is an Australian zookeeper who has a passion for photographing wild animals in Africa. Now, this adventurous photographer has just finished a year camping her way across Africa. And Bobby Joe, how did you come up with that idea? Oh, look, I've always loved Africa right from a little kid from watching, you know, BBC documentaries and just always wanted to get to Africa and I actually pursued a zookeeping um, role. Uh, I still am currently a zookeeper at Taronga Western Plains in uh, Dubbo. I just started going to Africa around 2004 um, with a love of photography as well. And it's kind of really become my life now. Uh, I started a, a safari company with one of my best mates a couple of years ago called Duma Safaris. And we decided to make our passion our work. Um, and we, yeah, we, we put together this safari company and we actually take people over and, um, on photographic safaris and teach them how to get the best shots because so many of my safaris, I've seen people really struggling 
was photographing the wildlife and coming home and being disappointed with what, what they photographed. And uh, I thought it was a really nice little niche to sort of get into and um, people can come away with something they're really proud of and hang on their walls when they get home. And, and then I decided to take a year off work. Uh, my, my employers were very... Uh, very supportive of me taking a year off and just staying over in Africa for a full 12 months and giving my business, my photographic story business, a red hot go. So that's kind of how it, it happened. But you did it as a nomad, didn't you? You weren't staying in, like when Phil went to um, South Africa, you were in some luxury resort. Yeah, but it was an open camp. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, it was, yeah. yeah, so you're, 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 you're camping, right? So you you are in the food chain. Yeah, well, no, that's, I did do a bit of glamping as well. So my... Um, my accommodations were all over the place, to be honest. I I camped with basically a tent um, out in the bush, but then I also took part in gl- what we would refer to as glamping, which is kind of like uh, the comforts of home inside your tent, but you're still in the bush and also the lodges. So I didn't necessarily camp the whole 12 months. I did have a bit of comforts from time to time. Were there any scares? Because I'm following uh, Sarah Davis, who we've interviewed on a podcast before. She's paddling the length of the Nile currently, and she was camping on the side of the river, and uh, they weren't allowed out of their tents because there was a hippo that was wandering around. Yep. Have you had any sort of scary moments like that? Oh, loads. Loads. I kind of, like, yeah, list, list long. Um, but I guess I'm never really too scared around wildlife. I work with wildlife for a living, so I kind of really embrace it and really love to be – I cherish those uh, close wildlife encounters. But, um, you know, I've been on foot with lions, tracking lions in Zimbabwe at a place called Mana Pools and um, have unfortunately uh, misjudged where those lions were and one shot up right in front of me. Um, and you kind of – you kind of go through scenarios of what will I do, you know, you know, fight or flight. And I definitely just stood my ground. And um, ultimately, animals are scared of us. I mean, I, I mentioned to someone the other day that we are like a giant baboon standing upright. So we are quite scary, especially if we are on foot. So I just held my ground and this, this line backed off and then I backed off. So I guess with knowing a bit about wildlife behaviour, um, yeah, I find that encounters, I cherish them. But um, safety is obviously always first as well. I've had elephants pushing up against my tent. Um, I've had hyenas smelling my head at night time. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. I've had guests. I've taken guests away and uh, to a place, a really wild place called uh, South Luanga in Zambia. And unfortunately, they couldn't access their tent for almost 24 hours because the elephant family had decided to come in and there's a tree next to their tent. And they just wanted to eat all the fruits off this tree. So um, they were out of accommodation for a whole day. <laughs> we couldn't get into the tent. Well, speaking of elephants, Botswana, which this podcast is about, is home to the world's largest um, number of elephants. You took some amazing photos of elephants uh, in, a, in a dust storm in Botswana, and you do some conservation work there? Yeah, so um, Botswana is one of our favourite destinations to go to. Uh, the images you're referring to are taken in the Okavango Delta uh, Reserve next to there called Maremi. Um and, yeah, we had um, a group of elephants all dust bathing. So dust bathing is really important for an elephant because it, um, it acts like a sun cream for their skin. It kind of helps with um, deterring uh, insects and parasites. And it's also fun. Elephants love throwing mud and throwing dirt. And one of the cool things to watch is when a young elephant starts learning how to dust bathe. They look ridiculous. They don't know what they're doing. They're just copying their mums and their aunties and they're just throwing sand everywhere. So it's kind of instinctive behaviour, but it's also they learn it. They learn the finesse of it by watching the adults. Uh, we do, uh, my partner, my business partner and I who run Dubas Safaris, we also have a uh, elephant charity that we run called the Iskari Project. 
And we, whilst we do support conservation efforts in Botswana, um, most of our funding is actually sent to Kenya, to Savo National Park, where the home of the last super tuskers live. So um, a tusker, a lot of people think that a tusker is just a bull elephant with tusks. A tusker is a very special elephant. It's an, a male elephant, an adult male elephant, that's tusks weigh in excess of 45 kilograms each. They call them 100-pounders. There's only nine left of them, well, nine left in all of Africa, um, super tuskers, and they live in Savo in Kenya. So a lot of our conservation money and work goes to helping um, provide, you know, protection for them. But we do um, also, uh, we visit many places in Botswana and support conservation there as well. Um, In particular, one of my favourite places in Botswana is um, an area called the Tuli Block, um, very, very pretty place, um, big pink granite rocks and lots of elephants. And there's actually a really special photographic hide that we go to um, where we, we photograph the elephants at their feet. So the elephants will come right up to us. We're in a big shipping container under the ground and the elephants are no more than 10 centimetres from your face, their feet. So you're, you're photographing them at this really unique angle. Botswana's amazing. So does it make you sad then, and this year, I don't know whether you're aware, Phil, that there was uh, a poaching frenzy of elephants in Botswana. I think there were about 87 found dead. Um, What's going on there? Have they not got control over the poachers? Look, it's a very um, tough situation to make comment on. Um, The Botswana government in in the past have been absolutely amazing at wildlife protection and conservation. And um, even as far as uh, the not allowing trophy hunting in Botswana. So elephants are fairly well protected there. Um, I guess it's not right of me to make comments because I'm not experienced with the current government of Botswana. Um, there has been obviously a new president come over. And um, I guess we see a lot of this hype on social media and it's kind of spread through social media. So it, I guess it's always best to, to get the real facts before we jump to conclusions about um, what's happening with, with elephants in Botswana. But, I mean, there's no denying it, there's elephants being killed, but I'm not really sure if that's from lack of anti-poaching efforts or, um, you know, it, it's really, it's a tough one to comment on. But um, it's incredibly sad. When you go over to Botswana, what, is, what do you most look forward to seeing? I have elephants for sure. So I travel to Botswana for, um, to the, into the Thule block purely for, for elephants, and there's also very good leopard there as well. One of my favourite species, which is a really amazing species and not many people know that is the African wild dog and there um Botswana has a very good population of wild dog up near the delta and I just recently spent two weeks with the Botswana and Predator Conservation Trust uh, photographing the conservation efforts uh, only just in uh, just in August and uh, a good friend of mine Neil Dr Neil Jordan he um he runs that project and uh you know wild dog they get they're being they're being persecuted. Um, people look at them as just a feral dog um, that attacks their livestock. So they're under a lot of threats at the moment. Um, uh, I, I believe they might even be classified as critically endangered, uh, almost critically endangered. So they're an amazing animal, and uh, yeah, Botswana has a nice little stronghold left of, of wild dog. Hey, how are you yeah. going adjusting to life within four walls again? Yeah, it's funny you used to say that. This morning I was walking around just feeling just out of sorts. Um, I mean, I have four beautiful dogs that I'm very dedicated to that uh, my mum takes care of whilst I'm away, and it's amazing to spend time with them. Yeah, it's it can be tough. It's I can't hear like I actually live because I work at Western Plains um, Zoo in Dubbo. I live only like maybe a couple of kilometres from the zoo on a property. And this morning when I went out to my backyard to feed my chooks, um, I could hear the lines roaring from the zoo because we've got a nice little pride of lines now and. 
it just made me smile. Like it was just like, oh, yes, I'm still here. Can hear a bit of Africa. Okay, Phil. Bobby Joe loves the sound of a lion roaring. Simon said earlier, if mm-hmm. that was the last sound you heard before he'd die, he'd die happy. So give us a lion roaring. Okay, I've got one for you. Here you go. <laughs> It's not bad, actually. <laughs> What's travel news? Uh, okay, our uh, American listeners are uh, just coming out of the other side of another Thanksgiving Day travel nightmare. <laughs> Why do we do it to ourselves? Snow has blanketed much of the northeast from New Hampshire to Pennsylvania, just as millions hit the road for the holiday. We hope you made it to wherever you were going, had a great time and made it home again safely. Uh, speaking of getting to where you hope to be going, Kim, have you ever ended up diverted to somewhere on on the way? Oh, yeah. Was it a good experience? Um, I've only been diverted within Australia. Oh, right. And it, it took all day for me to get to the place that I was going, which would normally be a one-hour flight. Okay, you're going to love this one. A yep. plane load of passengers on an Air France flight from Paris to Shanghai. Uh, the plane had a mechanical problem, so they had an unexpected three-day layover in Irkutsk in Siberia. Oh, what? <laughs> problem was, 264 passengers and the crew of 18 shipped to the hotels in the city, but they weren't dressed for the weather. It's minus 15 degrees. <laughs> Oh, you'd have to just, just you'd have to turn that experience around into a good well, one. Well, that's what I'm saying. Look, Air France has apologised and and they said they're going to compensate them, but I reckon this is actually a bonus. This is like you know a really great unexpected way to travel. Absolutely, a good story over dinner. Yeah, it kind of reminds me. Was it Nico from Jubel Travel? Yes, that we spoke to who organised you know secret trips for you, but this is really taking it to the next level. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, uh, but Siberia, why not? Irkutsk is near the uh, fabulous Lake Baikal, and you could try some of the local delis- delicacies like uh, pierogi, which are pies, basically, with an assortment of either mm. sweet or meat fillings. Or what about this one? You said there were no pronunciation problems <laughs> today, but here we go. Goroshnitsa. Well, look, it, Goroshnitsa. you made it sound like you know what you're talking about. Do you want about? the recipe? Yeah. In order to make goroshnitsa, you need fat from the red fish that swims in the Angara River. Grind dried peas into flour, mix with boiling water and keep in a water bath. Cool the mass, cut it, cut it into rectangular plates and pour the visceral fish fat over them. Oh my goodness. Okay, how about a lovely dish of bear paw? Oh, you can't. First, the bear paws are marinated, fried, and then stewed for a long time. Long time, there's your hint. Oh, so they're tough as boots. <laughs> this now. recipe said the dish must be eaten hot. It's usually served as an appetizer to vodka and not for the faint hearted. Yeah. I reckon you need a bottle of vodka before you even <laughs> attempted that. Uh, but sadly, for the Air France passengers, no one could leave the hotel because they didn't have Russian visas. So. <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of Siberia, a row has erupted amongst twitches, that's bird watchers, over a statue erected in the Siberian town of Kikanda. The region is known for sightings of the rare long-eared owl, and the town's put up a statue of one of the owls. But it's in that kind of really sort of blocky Soviet style, so it looks phallic. (laughs) Look, we're going to put up a photo in the show notes, but... I've looked at it from a certain, in a certain light. Really? really? <laughs> yeah, it's not so much owly as sort of, you know, phallic <laughs> Which, 
Which brings me to this, Kim, and here goes our clean rating, all right? Okay. Another blog has come up with a list of 50 towns with suggestive names, or at least, you know, double entendre names. Yep. Blue Ball, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Climax, Pennsylvania. (laughs) And Reamstown, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Come on, Pennsylvania, what's going on? (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. All right. There's another one, and I'm... I'm pretty sure it's pronounced anu, but it's anus in France. <laughs> the very famous Austrian town where they keep losing all the, um, you know, the signs, the directional signs of the town because it's called fucking. <laughs> <laughs> this middle fart in Denmark. <laughs> Long dong in China. <laughs> Muff Island. Bumpass Virginia. <laughs> Uh, North Carolina is getting in on Pennsylvania's uh, territory here with erect, which is on the other side of the country from Utah's nipple. <laughs> if you go up to the far northeast in Newfoundland, you can go. You can go have a look at dildo. <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell me. You can't tell me. Uh, okay. What about Big Beaver in Saskatchewan? Oh no! Uh, the Brit. The Brit. I'm like wet wang in <laughs> in Britain. Yeah. Uh, or snorting, sorry. <laughs> Three cocks in Wales. Uh, Pennsylvania's back on the list. Here we go. More Headville. <laughs> <laughs> Someone on that council is having a laugh. Okay. <laughs> There's a big knockers town somewhere in Britain. And, of course, the Australian blowhard. We have a blowhard. But can I just tell you my absolute favourite? <laughs> yep. All right. It's in Japan. Right. Go fuck you. <laughs> I'm sure it's Gofuku or something, <laughs> yeah, but it, it certainly looks like Gofuku. It would be. <laughs> there, goes, there goes the clean rating. Oh, gee, that was oh, i got to just say, as the author of Just Wanderlust, where I picked up that book, um, the author says, I can't believe there's a blue ball in Pennsylvania when intercourse is just 15 minutes away. <laughs> I think you've, I think That's you, it. I'm going to give you a standing ovation. Oh, thank That's you. Thank best, you. Thank you. The best travel news yet. Oh, dear. Thank you very much. Kelsey Timmerman is the New York Times best-selling author of Where Am I Wearing, Where Am I Eating? And Kelsey, what's your latest book? Yeah, it's Where Am I Giving? Well, let me guess. Is this when we give a donation of $2, where is that 2 bucks going? Partly. So I followed some, like, common ways that uh, we give. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I gave through Kiva and then followed it back to meet the people who were lent the money uh, in Cambodia. I hung out with World Vision in Zambia. So that, that's definitely part of it. But the way the book uh, came about was through my travels. You know, my first book, I looked into the garment industry and I hung out with uh, individuals who work in garment factories or sweatshops. My second book, I went to Colombia to meet coffee farmers and met a slave in West Africa. And so you see this inequality and injustice that exists in the world, then how do you process this? What do you do? What do you do to make a difference? So I kind of set off on this quest to answer, like, how are how can you be a good global and local citizen? Is there some type of equation that we can sort out? Um, so that's, I went to the most generous country on the planet, which is Myanmar, despite having uh, ongoing ethnic cleansing and uh, longest-running genocide. I uh, went to Cambodia. Um, I went to India, where I met Gandhi's great-grandson, and uh, beyond. Just back out there about Myanmar. So is that like 
per head how much money they give away as a government? Is that how you work that out? So it's uh, there's something called the global the World Giving Index, um, and they measure three things. They measure have you given money over the last thirty days when they're doing the survey? Have you helped a stranger? And have you volunteered in the last thirty days? So when they add all of those, in fact, all those things in, Myanmar has been the top of the list. I think for the last like three three to four years. This is your latest book. Where am I giving? Um, the one that you talk about, the clothing industry, where am I wearing? One thing that I was a bit confused about, are you telling us, because you've got, you've got an outfit and you trace your T-shirt and your thongs and your shorts or whatever back to the country of origin and you meet the people that make it. You'll tell us more about that. But are you saying to us that we shouldn't be buying clothes made in Bangladesh or are you saying to us we should so we support that economy? Yeah, so uh, I'll back up. And how it originally started was I love to travel. I knew you could go anywhere in the world and have adventures and meet people I found interesting. So I just, as random act of travel, I decided to go wherever my T-shirt was made. It was made in Honduras. So I showed up there and had the adventures and decided I should at least go to the factory. And there outside that factory, I met a guy who was my same age. At the time, I was 25 years old. His name was Emil Carr. Our lives were vastly different. The opportunities and privileges that had uh, presented themselves to uh, us were, were were different. I think it's the first time I kind of like started to examine the privileges and opportunities of my own life. Um, and so what I set out to do after meeting him was just to tell the story that is truest to the lives of the workers. And some of the workers, if you ask them, say like in Cambodia, well, people in, um, you know, in, in Australia and the United States think that we shouldn't buy your, the blue jeans that you make because you're not paid well enough you're not treated right and one of the one of the young women was like well then i wouldn't have a job right so that's partly right when the global economic uh you know recession hit millions of garment workers around the world lost their job so i'm not taking a stance one way or the other i think it is much more complex than we're comfortable with it being so you're basically putting a human face on globalization exactly isn't there such thing though as ethical trade where you should be paying a minimum amount of money an hour? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and there's been a lot of improvements too. Um, it, you know, there was uh, one of the worst disasters uh, in history in the garment industry and in industry period was uh, factory collapse in Bangladesh in yeah. 2013, I believe, killing more than 1,100 people. And since then, I think that was a real slap in, in the face of the industry. And definitely in Bangladesh, the building codes have been worked on on and and factories have been inspected and that has improved also there's a whole movement of fair trade clothing that didn't exist just you know six seven years ago it still does my head in that they can pay somebody ten dollars to make a t-shirt but sell it for 120 yeah that's a huge profit margin for that company isn't it yeah uh, yeah i mean it's, it's like that in food too right when it comes to what a banana farmer in costa rica gets for lugging that banana on his back to the processing station, he gets like 1% of the price of, of that banana. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just, it's kind of, there is, uh, you know, a lot of inequality and in injustice in our world. And I think that we all need to be aware of that inequality and injustice. And I think that we can see that we're connected with these individuals around the world. And we have some, I think we should accept some responsibility of that we can make an impact. So then the next question is, how are we going to act? Yeah, exactly. Well, so what do we do? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, uh, part of our job is being a responsible consumer. But like I said, we're not going to 
shop our way to a better world. So I think we have to look at our lives as uh, global and local citizens and, and, and look at that balance. And that's the whole point of, of where my giving is trying to figure this out. Um, there, you know, one way is as donors, and I've seen like the, the footprint uh, that, that you all have made in, in kind of empowering travelers to give to the destinations that they have been to and kind of in line with the sustainable development goals by the UN. I think that's, you know, that's fantastic. You know, I think travel is a great way to become aware. And even our travel dollars themselves, as we are traveling, can be spent on with local groups and local businesses. And I think that can make a real difference. Now, that was a really long chat with Kelsey that we had originally about his global tour of where he was wearing, eating and giving. But obviously, we only have so much time. So we're going to offer a transcript of the full chat with all the stories of the people that he met in show notes because it was super fascinating. Well worth the read. Just fascinating stuff. Heather Richardson is a full-time freelance journalist. She's a writer and editor, award-winning, by the way, and she's interested in conservation stories, emerging destinations, responsible luxury, areas of wilderness, inspiring people and cultures, and wildlife. So she's written um, for us, or is writing for us, on Botswana. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell me about the Sand Bushman. So the sand bushmen are they traditionally um, lived all over Southern Africa. Um, and because of colonialism and various other factors, they, they've essentially been sort of pushed into Botswana now, and that's really the only place you'll find them, um, some in Namibia too. Um, but the beauty of going somewhere like Botswana is that you can actually still learn a bit about how they used to live. And these, this is an ancient culture. They've been around for... I think longer than most people in the world and they still keep their practices going today so they they know the land better than anyone else they are so in tune with everything they've lived off the land they're hunter gatherers so it's going on a walk with them which you can do in in Botswana in the Makati Kati pans which is the salt flats in Botswana um just kind of reveals just a tiny little bit of what they know which is you know, thousands and thousands of years worth of knowledge that they've gathered there. So they're a really interesting community. Um, Unfortunately, it is sort of a a dying culture just because of globalization and, you know, and and young uh, Bushmen wanting to kind of go into cities and, and get formal education, which is good in many ways, but it does mean that the culture is sort of dying out. So... The sort of tourism interactions you get can be actually a good way of them sustaining that culture. So what's so special about the, the way of life then? It's just a very um, in tune with the, 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 um, the environment. So, for example, when we were walking with them, they, they showed us how you can find water from a root. And what I really liked about it is that they didn't just dig up the root squeeze out the water and discard the root, they reburied it again so they could find so they'd be able to reaccess it on another on another walk. And it's just a very sort of I think a very like delicate way of dealing with the environment. And it's it's it can teach us a lot, I think, as well about sustainability and about working with the environment and and having, you know, humans and and nature kind of complement each other. So did you take part in a trance dance on this walk or is that a separate experience you had in Botswana that was it was on in the same trip I didn't take part in it um we just witnessed it 
So we were, um, they do them quite regularly, I think. And we were there, just happened to be on the right night. And essentially, it's just, they, they have a healer who's part of the group. He sort of, they, they, they do lots of stomping and dancing around the fire and that he eventually goes into a trance and then he, he, he heals everyone, puts his hands on people and, and, and treats them. And it's a very like ancient practice that they've done for years and years and they, they can go like literally all night um, and then do a 20K walk afterwards as well. They're just they're, they're quite, quite an incredible people in that way. Where, the, where I was in the Makadi Kadi, um, they have... They have a good relationship with the camp I was staying at because the owner was brought up with them. So he's he's white, he's Western, but he was brought up on the pans and brought up with them, so speaks their language. Um, and that's why you kind of have access there to that kind of, those kind of experiences. Just paint a bit of a picture for me. About, I mean, what is the environment that they're in? What is it like? It's very dry? Yeah, very. So the, the, the Makati Kadi is... Um, it used to be a lake the size of Switzerland, and it's since millions of years ago dried up, and it's now these huge salt flats, um, and it's just, it's, it's a really sort of epic environment, actually. Uh, one of the things you can do is you can go quad biking across them, which takes you out to the sort of, just to experience the vastness of it, and it's really barren. But the, the great thing about being there is you realize that even though it seems like it should be such a harsh, like inhospitable environment it's actually not and there are lots of animals who exist there and they have um what's it, the kalahari which is the bigger kind of environment it's in is has a boom and bust system so they have nine years of dry weather and nine years of wet weather and the kind of wildlife ebbs and flows with that so when we were there we were catching kind of a, a bit of a boom system and we had elephants walking past our tent we saw lionesses fighting um, some males, some male lions uh, watching big herds of zebra. Um, and, and since then, I think they've, they've even seen some leopards and wild dogs. And it's amazing because I don't think anyone thinks that you'd find that kind of wildlife in an environment like that. But it's it's just an incredible place where wildlife adapts. I've, I've done a, uh, some game drives. I've done a little bit of safari myself, and it is pretty amazing. But there must be more. Yeah. To, there must be more to Africa that attracts you so much. I mean, other people we've spoken to for this episode as well. You either you know you either love or you hate Africa, and a lot of people love it. So what else is it that really gets you? Um, it's yeah, it's it's right. It's not just safari that you can do here. I mean, just as an example, I was recently in Rwanda. I was in Kigali, which is the capital, and that's. That was a sort of mind-blowingly amazing city because of, of the way the kind of city has developed. So obviously in 1994, they had the genocide in Rwanda. Um, a million people killed over 100 days. And to see the way the country has bounced back and now operates, it's it's really inspiring. There's so much to learn. I mean, you know, they for one thing, it's, it's probably the cleanest country in the whole of Africa. And pro- I mean, it has to be up there in the cleanest cities in the world. It was just crazy clean and one of the reasons is they banned plastic bags so there's less of that kind of rubbish around but there's they also have um a monthly day uh i think it's the last sunday of every month when the whole country comes together to clean up and take part in community activities like for instance like building new kind of uh, roads or something like that 
and it's just it's just really you, you can't really think of it working anywhere else but obviously it could and it just shows what sort of like a um, sort of different approach to leadership can 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 achieve uh, so that so there's, there's those kind of things as well where you see countries recovering from a tragedy and how they've done that and that's fascinating too. You keep traveling and creating amazing award-winning content and thank you so much for chatting to us we'll share your website in our show notes. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our episode on Botswana. Except for, let me wrap it up with the answer to the quiz question. What's the major export of Botswana? It's diamonds. Uh, And 1966, before independence, it was one of the poorest countries in Africa. A year after they gained independence, they discovered this massive uh, diamond mine. And now they're absolutely shoveling them out of this mine. Isn't and they're that controversial, one of, though? They're one of the richest countries uh, in Africa now. Well, blood diamonds, all those that, you know, get, um, you know, smuggled out of the country. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think they've done a fair bit to make it a legit in- industry now. Uh, other fact for you, Prince Harry, you were t- talking about with Simon yep. in the podcast. Um, the His engagement ring with Meghan Markle had three diamonds on it. Two of the diamonds were from his mother, from Diana, and the third diamond was from Botswana. Good way to wrap up, I reckon. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can download the Google Podcast app or ask Alexa and Google Home to play the World Nomads podcast. Now, Phil, what's next week? Uh, Next week, no more uh, dirty place names. (laughs) We'll keep it clean next week. I'm sorry. But we are going to have a bit of fun. We talked to a couple who have had the world's worst honeymoon. See you then. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.